Welcome. I'm Ross Young, and I'm here with Gmar Cardi, and we are both excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. CISO Tradecraft is a podcast which discusses how to navigate people, processes, technologies, and environmental issues within the information security industry. The show focuses on mentoring the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, we are excited to take you to today's show. Well, hello, this is G. Mark Hardy, and I'm privileged to be here with Ross Young for yet another episode of CISO Tradecraft. And today, I think we've got something that is going to be extraordinarily useful for you. So please listen through. All right. Welcome. So we're super excited to be here today. And G-Mark and I have been talking a little bit lately, and he has some fantastic ideas about team building that I think would be really helpful for any CISOs out there or folks who want to get into those executive leadership opportunities. So G-Mark, what are some ideas that you want to share about team building? Well, Ross, I think one of the things we look at is for us who are for for those of us who aspire to be or who are CISOs, one of the things I want you to think about is think of the title of CISO. There's two clues in there. The C, chief, you're in charge. And the O, the officer, you're accountable. And so the information security just happens to be the area of the organization of which we are in charge and accountable for. But there's the chief officers in a lot of other areas. We need to act that part. And one of the important things that comes out, and for some of us, seems to be a little bit of a letdown, is you want to avoid being a hero. That's my first rule. But I love wearing a cape, right? I mean, who's your favorite caped hero? I mean, if you think about them, Superman has a cape, Batman, Thor, Raven, Storm, even Syndrome, kind of the anti-hero or the bad guy, if you will, in The Incredibles. Uh, But... How many of those are in leadership roles? Okay, one out of six. Storm, she leads the X-Men from time to time, but the numbers aren't good. And if you look at cartoon characters, you find out one of the more recent uh, popular leaders is Gru. He leads all the minions, but he doesn't wear a cape. So the lesson here is in cybersecurity, heroism is not our goal. I submit that effective leadership of your team and enabling your enterprise to accomplish their mission securely is your goal. And yet, often we default to heroism. Ross, I know that we've been looking at some self-assessment tools here, but you've come up with what I thought was kind of a great uh, question that was based right around that point. Yeah, so when we look at the difference between someone who is very effective as a security engineer versus someone who is very effective as a cyber executive, we can take a simple question that just says, okay, this incident response team has just informed you that one of your major applications appears to be leaking data. What do you do on that situation, right? And and there's two types of people that that really tackle this. One is the ones who go all techie and say, okay, let's go log into the the system. Let's see what's happening. Let's understand why it's happening and, and going on that. And that takes you down one route. And then the other is let the team do it and let me work with the business leaders to inform them a situation has happened, right? So one is much more of a business side and the other is much more of a technical side. Now, the question is, which one do you think is more appropriate for a CISO? Well, and 
and it and there's no one right answer, but I will tell you, if you do the first route where you go all techie, it's helpful to train the team up. Yes, but you're never going to have enough cycles and you haven't enabled the team to step up and drive that behavior that you wanted. And at the same time, from disenfranchising your team, you've also not given the business a heads up that you might be taking their critical applications down. And if you're not a good communicator across your peer network in that business side, you're going to have a whole new set of issues as a CISO. G. Mark? When we get into security leadership, our role has to change. I mean, in the Navy, as I think you know, I was a captain and used to argue that, yeah, the captain has probably got the most experience of anybody on that ship and can probably steer, be the helmsman better than anybody else. But if the captain's steering the ship, who's making the command decisions? You've got to delegate. You've got to trust your people to do so. So my work as a VCSO gets involved for companies who don't need a CISO full-time, 40 hours a week. Okay, 50 hours. All right, 60 all right, 65 hours a week, they don't need a full-time CISO, but as a virtual CISO, you still end up sometimes coming in there and uh, wanting to roll up your sleeves and put on the cape. And yet it doesn't fit in your plans for professional growth. One of the things that you'll likely be responsible for in your career as you move from technology to management to leadership is the maturity of your organization. Now, there's plenty of organizational maturity models out there. And I would submit that after 20 or more years in any business, you could probably build your own. And it's probably got a lot of value in it. And if you look around, you can find some in rather unusual places. One that I found that I really liked was from the Pete Fowler Construction Services Incorporated. Okay, now I had not heard of Pete Fowler before I went looking for it. But it turns out he's, uh, he runs a business that has nothing to do with cybersecurity, nothing to do with computer security. And yet, it turns out that he's got a great blog post entitled Organizational Maturity. And we'll, I'll give that link to you in the supporting information. But what Pete points out, which I really resonated with, is five different levels of organizational maturity. And level one, as he defines it, relies mostly on individual effort, what we would call heroic effort. There's your heroes, right? Success isn't integrated with the team. Your success is not repeatable. It could be considered maybe a genius with helpers, which works great, except when the organization grows, the genius can't be everywhere. And without effective delegation, this level of maturity at the lowest level is not sustainable. And one of the biggest transitions that often we make when we move from technology to management and leadership roles is having to let go of the, the wrench, if you will. You got to hand the wrench and hand it to your team. And when you see them struggling with it, you can't say, oh, come on, let me do that. This is easy. Sure, it's easy. You've been doing it for, for years. They've got to learn too. And so you have to allow that. Now, at some point in time, if you get out of this hero mentality, you realize that you can have a bit more of a process to what you're doing. Level two would be a process orientation. Now, there's less drama going on. There's, there's less excitement, perhaps. But in a situation like that, you've just begun to document things. Your, your leadership would take some initial steps to create some process, but you really don't have anything formalized yet. 
Most of the time you get stuff right, but if you're asked by senior management or an auditing team, hey, can you show us this policy? Can you show us this procedure? Uh, you might have a little bit of hand-waving to do. Uh, Ross, what do you think comes after that then, after we've just begun our process orientation? So I think after you've done that, you really need to define and manage the process, right? And this is what you see in all the lean leadership models, which is we can't just rely on one person. We need to rely on an effective process. And if you improve the process, then it improves it for the 10 people who are there and the new people who come in and out of the process. And, and one quick example of that, when I was working in a, in a large bank, we created a uh, how-to guide for information security officers where they could come in and it would show them how to do each of the activities. And then as we had more people come in, they just had to look at the guide. We didn't have to spend the time to go in and personally handhold them. And if they had things that they found that were helpful, we added new processes to the guide. So these ways really help folks. G-Mark? Yeah, and even at that point, you're getting your own team members excited about increasing this effectiveness of this process. They're able to see the benefits of having something that recurs on a regular basis and gets repeatable results. As we go beyond that to level four, we get into quantitative management. Here's where we get into the leadership concepts, senior management concepts called KPIs, key performance indicators. Key performance indicators are an excellent way to ensure that managers stay aligned with what it is that they need to be doing with respect to the overall organizational mission. And now at this point in time, there's also a conceptual mind shift. One of the interesting things I found out is that kind of in the junior officer ranks in the military, you say, well, I got, I got 20 salaries that work for me. I got 30 salaries or 100 salaries that work for me. When you get to command, you understand that you could say, hey, I work for 400 sailors. What do you mean? I clear obstacles out of their way. I empower them to get their jobs done. I create a working environment for them to succeed, and I give them pathways to career success. At that point in time, as a leader, you start thinking about working for your teams, and you serve your direct reports, not vice versa. Notice that that's kind of an important conceptual shift. Because now as we're getting in toward the concept of servant leadership, at the higher levels, we'll find out that you become the type of boss that everybody would love to work for. And when you get to the highest level, level five, if you will, world-class performance, as a leader, you become an evangelist for your own people. You're, you're bragging about how great your team is. You're telling everybody how wonderful the security team is at your organization. When you get up there and are invited to speak at a conference or you go and present, you're not thumping your chest about, oh, we faced this difficult problem and I did these great heroics and I was up 19 hours a night. And No, you talk about your team. And the credit, as well as the compensation, gets shared. It creates a high trust environment. And so as we move from the lowest level of maturity to the highest level, you can begin to see that being a hero isn't all it's cracked up to be. It's uh, at least not in our line of work. Yeah. When I think about this, the best leaders exemplify this. When something goes really well, they give all the credit to their teams. And when something goes really wrong, they take all the blame. And that's a really good leader. It sounds horrible when you're that person, but 
who doesn't want to work for that type of leader who really promotes his people and also is a buffer when things go wrong? And so taking that ability of going from the I'm the hero to building the effective processes to becoming that servant leadership example for the team is just really amazing when you look at those types of organizations. And it does require a certain level of maturity above you. So if, if you're in a zero defect organization where the big bosses are, anybody makes a mistake, they're fired. It's controlled by fear when you're in an environment that's controlled by fear. Uh, and you say, well, okay, see, so you screw things up, you're fired. Well, then you got to be careful. And the difficulty here and this is probably a tangential to the core of building the excellence with your own team is you got to survive within the ecosystem within which you work. And if there's a toxic environment and it's above you and around you, and you're trying to create a little oasis of decency in an organization, you're constantly fighting an uphill battle. And at some point in time, you have to recognize that to be able to do what you need to do for your team to help them succeed. You have to survive. It doesn't help to be falling on your sword all the time. So at some point in time, uh, and again, this is not the subject of this call, but we want to think about, you have to do a realistic look around to say, do I really need to be here? Let's assume, however, that you do need to be there and you've got to get things done. And so to accomplish your mission, you're going to have to build out teams. Now, teams are different than working groups. Teams have a shared goals. They're mutually accountable to each other. They'll collaborate, work together toward a greater goal. Working groups may have individual contributors. They may be put together sort of ad hoc, but oftentimes they're not aligned to a common purpose. Some people join a working group because they want to get the publicity or they want to go ahead and get the inside skinny or they have their own little personal agenda they want to advance in that area. Think about it. Which do you have? Do you have teams or do you have working groups? And why would you want to form teams? Well, I, I think it's about sharing an objective and working to it. And, and the classic team example here is NASA, right? If you were going to say we're going to put a man on the moon for the first time in the world, that's probably something no person could do on their own. Right. You got to know how to build a rocket ship. You got to know how to build rocket fuel. You got to know how to fly a plane. You got to be able to calculate the the math to get there. That's a lot of complex problems. And it's really too big for one person. And not only that, but when the consequences are so bad, you need to understand all those complexities, right? What are, how the systems have to integrate together. That's a lot of different moving parts. And when you think about that and you start to say, okay, I need a team to do this, how do we get the right people with the right knowledge and the right time on target to build this solution that helps address this problem? And one of the things you can do as part of building out a team is if you have some promising junior talent working their way up. Put them in there. Maybe even put them in there with a mission to say you're there as a recorder to take the notes or to, to keep track of things. Let people see what happens well above their pay grade, if you will. Why? Because you start to develop 
your people. You're going to recognize the opportunity to give them exposure to what it's like at the next level up without ever having to drive at that higher level. In a way, it's sort of like being in a simulator. You can't crash it. Why then would we want to go ahead and have problems? I mean, teams, team formation looks great. And yet there are things that limit team formation. There is some concerns. If you look at the book and working knowledge, they identify the concept of knowledge hoarding. And that can be caused by friction in the culture. Things that could contribute to that. And again, look around, see if any of this sounds familiar. Lack of trust. Do status and rewards go to the knowledge owners? And therefore, if you share your knowledge, you lose status. And uh, knowledge power is considered to be one of the sources of power in organizations that people who know the answers and are constantly consulted for it uh, feel that they have a sense of power because they control that. And if they share too much, they're going to feel like they've got nothing left. Uh, the, the not invented here syndrome. Well, sorry, we can't do that. It's got to be something we invent ourselves. And so as a result, the team's been brought together to implement some sort of a concept that may be from the outside, even if it's industry best practice, fails that not invented here syndrome. And if you have an organization that has an intolerance for mistakes or an intolerance for anybody who asks for help, you're going to have a problem. And the difficulty is, is that when you're facing these organizational barriers, you may be limited in what you can do to remove them. To a certain extent, you can create, as I mentioned before, the concept of an oasis. In an organization that is dysfunctional, you can create a functional oasis where everybody gravitates to, they want to be part of it. But the difficulty is maintaining that. Although others may admire what you do and they may recognize it, by very definition of being in a dysfunctional organization, they're also going to resent you for being successful and they might try to undermine your efforts. So again, it requires this layer eight political awareness to understand what you're doing as you're doing things to be able to build out your teams. Now, if you're going to build out your teams, you're going to need to remember no heroes, check your cape at the door. Now, one of the things we need to do as leaders is to remove barriers. We want to go ahead if we facing some of these difficulties of removing this blame game from our culture, it should be okay. It should be safe to make mistakes as long as there's some associated learning involved. As we say, you don't live long enough to make all the mistakes. And so it's okay to make a mistake, but it's not okay to make the same one twice. Also encourage participation in generating ideas. Remember the rules of brainstorming 101 that says there are no bad ideas just very low priority ones. And so encourage your people to participate. Nothing shuts down innovation. Nothing shuts down a willingness to contribute. Like having a new junior employee say, hey, I, I think this would be a good idea. And some grouchy old grumpy coworker says, well, that's got to be about the dumbest thing I ever heard. They're not going to want to contribute anymore. So make sure that you control that. Also, recognize that credit and recognition are your magic tools. Credit, if you will, is the loaves and fishes of business. It's infinitely divisible. 
you are always able to go ahead and give others credit for things. Bonaparte had said, a soldier will fight long and hard for a bit of colored ribbon. Because he understood the concept of motivating people. Find out what motivates your people and draw them to that. And if your organization doesn't have a system for recognizing excellence, create one. Now, Ross, there's some excellent writings out there in terms of team stages and things such as that. What have you found out? So I think the most common one we'll see is from Bruce Tuckerman, where he talks about the stages of development for teams. And as we think about this teaming model, he states there's there's five phases, if you will. There's a forming phase, there's a storming phase, a norming phase, a performing phase, and last but not least, there's really the adjoining stage or, or retirement stage, if you will. And understanding these phases and the fact that they take time can be quite helpful. Now, his initial model really only listed four. He added the adjourning phase or adjournment at the end. Uh, but let's focus on the first four because I think those are the ones we have probably the most control over. In the, the forming phase, people are transitioning from individuals to members. How do we know? What's characteristic of that? Optimism, excitement, anticipation. Hey, we're going to get to work on something new. Unfortunately, there's also sort of an incomplete understanding of the problem. They go like, well, yeah, we don't know, but we're going to figure it out. Also, from a dynamics, if you haven't worked with these other people before, trust is an unknown factor. Uh, and where the knowledge is, isn't obvious. And so there's really not yet a lot of progress toward the goal. So if you've ever been invited to participate in something new and you're all excited about that, and that sounds wonderful, that's great. But recognize that you're yet to form an effective team. Both your best days are ahead of you and perhaps your worst days are ahead of you as well. After a while, we hit the storming phase. If you will, reality hits the fan. This is where personal agendas start to run wild, that there's a realization, wow, this is a lot more difficult than we anticipated. And so what happens? People tend to fall back on their heroism. They go digging out their capes and dust them off rather than collaborating. And the danger here is a sense of dissatisfaction with results. People get a little bit jealous or they're not forming as a team. And you as a leader need to be on top of this. You need to really understand the fact that when your team goes through this, that's going to be an inevitable stage of development. So one of the pieces I really think is important on the storming phase is that's really where the creativity comes. We have multiple people presenting their ideas, and we don't really know how to work to each, with each other yet. We're in that honeymoon, honeymoon phase has just faded off, and we're fighting with each other. And that tension builds even more good ideas. So going back to G. Mark's earlier comment, how do we make sure we're not that gruff voice that's you know shutting down the good ideas before we can give them a chance to really live and grow? Now, Ross, you've pointed out something that I don't think any other management writer has ever pointed out, which is sort of the positive side of the storming phase. It's almost always listed as sort of a negative thing, but if you've indicated, it's where these ideas, the creativity kicks into gear. And... So look for that. But also as a manager, 
look for the almost inevitable sense of, oh man, this is tough and this is terrible and everybody's kind of getting a little bit grouchy and grumpy. But if you can get them through that phase, they've gone from forming to storming, they get into norming. Now the enthusiasm begins to increase. The team will start to gel. We get more cooperation. People look at each other and they recognize that, hey, I can depend on this person. They've got my back. They're not going to throw me under the bus when something goes a little bit wrong. And now there's an increased sense of belonging, if you will, a sense of friendship. Uh, and because people are starting to feel better, there might the danger here might be a little bit of a temptation to, to go beyond the initial scope of what the task was all about. And so now your problem is almost reversed as a leader from becoming a cheerleader to encouraging your people through the dark, difficult days of storming to restraining them a little bit in the norming phase because now they think they can take on the world. When all yeah. goes well, yeah, go ahead. I, I like that, you know, and in this norming phase where we've gotten through the hard parts, it's all about setting the the energy, the enthusiasm, right, to bring that into the most important phase. Mm -hmm. Mark? Yeah, and then that, that is going to be the performing stage. It's when we're hitting on all eight cylinders. At this point in time, our team has been together for a while. Our roles are well-defined and they're accepted. The team is highly productive. There's an identity of teams. People feel like they can go ahead and, and want to recognize themselves. Maybe they'll even get fan coins, as we used to call them in the military, or challenge coins, or something that identifies you as being part of this group. The morale is high. You're an effective, cohesive unit. And when you've reached this performance phase, this is where you're able to go ahead and deliver. You deliver excellence. People are happy. They look forward to being part of it. You're almost seen sort of as a beacon of, hey, can I be part of that team? Now, as you had mentioned, Ross, the fifth phase, which really is kind of incidental, is the adjourning phase. It's when the task has been completed, the mission for which the team was put together has been satisfied, and that's characterized mostly by sort of a sense of loss, like, oh, man, we're going to be leaving, and I'm going to miss this, and this was pretty good. We'll hopefully get together again. It's an inevitable stage, but sometimes your, your performing stage could last for a long, long period, and you might not get there. But recognize that as people move to another team, you might see this whole cycle repeat over and over again. And since your people are at different levels of behavior and different levels of motivation during these different phases, Ross, are there any ideas to suggest from our leadership style? Can we just get by with a monolithic approach or is there a better way to do things? Yeah, I would hope we would tailor it based on the individuals we're working with and the, the organization, right? So in here, we, we see there's a couple of, of key things. There's the situational leadership developed by Dr. Paul Hershey. There's the one-minute manager approach and situational leadership styles. And, and, and I'll just start with one style, which is probably the least effective, which is telling people, right? And this is a high-task behavior, which is just think of the example. Developers are going to have defects in their code, and we're going to say, hey, please go fix those. Well, some may do it, some may not do it. And so then we're just really telling people to do things, but not really providing the influence or taking that leadership style to the next level. And what we're doing is just creating movement, uh, 
but we don't get any feedback of making sure that people understand what to do when we say, just do it, right? And and that comes back with frustration, or they just feel that cybersecurity is just bugging them and nagging them all the time. They keep telling me, do these things. Well, don't they know how resource constrained I am? And, and so it's not the most effective approach. G. Mark, what would be a more effective approach? Well, more effective, again, we're looking at situational leadership. And so the question is, why would it ever be appropriate to do the telling? And that's probably a good question for us to back up a moment and ask. Well, there are situations where you basically have people who don't know their jobs. They're brand new. They need to be directed. And if they try to figure things out on their own, it's going to screw up badly. Uh, So in the military, we have something called boot camp. And that is all about telling. It's all about, we'll tell you when to get up, when to go to bed, what to wear, when to eat, what to eat, and everything else like that. It's extraordinarily directive. And it's unpleasant, but at the time, it's appropriate simply because you have people who don't know what needs to be done, but there's something that has to get done. Now, in a different style, the next style, the selling style, now we're still high on the task behavior. We're still high on telling people what to do. But now instead of being a low relationship where there's no really feedback other than, did you understand what you were told? Now there's a relationship there. The leader is still going to decide the what and the how and the when, but is open to discussion about the why and the where. At this point in time in the selling phase, you're involving the followers, the team members, in making some of the inputs. It's still basically, you know, we discuss, but I decide. But it creates some buy-in, and it begins to get people to gain a little bit of confidence. Now, next, once we believe the team has matured beyond that point where they gain that confidence, they gain that experience, we can go to the participative or participating style, number three. That's now a high relationship behavior as well, but we've reduced the focus on the tasking. Now the leader is able to ask open-ended questions because the team members are able to come up with the answers themselves. So they'll still, we'll discuss, and then we can decide because we're consulting, if you will, with our people, but now it's becoming follower-driven. We're moving toward, but we're not quite at a self-directed level where People are able to go ahead and make their own choices uh, completely. But it gives some alignment for followers that have some skill, but they're not quite fully confident. But the fourth level, if you will, the highest level, the delegating, now it's kind of on low relationship, low task behavior. Wait a minute, that sounds like not involved. Yeah, it's basically the communications from the followers going to the leader. It assumes at that point in time, because why you're using this situational leadership model, that your people are self-motivated. They're going to do things. And in the military, we had something called command by negation. You knew you would really earn your commander's trust when you could use this technique. And the way the command by negation would work is you go to your boss and you send Ross, unless otherwise directed, I intend to do such and such. And what that is basically telling your boss is that I'm going to proceed to take this initiative. And if you don't come back and say, no, G. Mark, that's a bad idea. I want you to do something else. I'm free to go ahead and do that. That's a high level of trust. That's a high level of belief in the leader, in the followers when we get to that. 
Okay. So to just to recap, we go from the first phase of telling someone where we don't really care what they think. We go to selling someone where we've told them, but we also value the relationship. Participating where the user actually gets to be involved and becomes part of the commitment. And in this final phase of delegating where they really get to lead. And so it's really this enablement of the person based on their abilities and that trust you've built in this relationship. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great summary, which sort of brings up an interesting question because we've taken a look at both the teaming model when we're looking at the organizational maturity. Uh, We've looked at being able to go ahead and getting through these different phases of the Tuckman model, as well as Hersey's situational leadership. You think we can combine these models? I, I believe so. You see, when you're forming, in the forming phase, the team lacks direction and lacks skill. So telling may be an appropriate situational leadership style because people don't know what to do. When you get to the storming phase, when people are getting disheartened, the team is willing to try something and are unable, they're getting discouraged, selling. Go ahead, encouragement. Come on, we can do this. Let's make this happen. When we get to the norming phase, the team is capable, but they're not fully confident yet. They're not quite sure they can pull this off. And now it's appropriate to have a participating type of a situational leadership style where you'll discuss things. People begin to build that confidence. And in the performing phase, the team is capable, the team is confident, it's appropriate to delegate. And so we find out, although there's not a direct relationship between these two models, that they do align significantly with respect to what's an appropriate style for where your team is in their development phase. Meaning as a leader, you have to both be flexible in your leadership style, as well as be able to assess accurately where you happen to be. Now, this is not a direct match, but there's some alignment. So let's go one more step. Let's look at the role of things like morale and competency. If you were to draw a little graph here in four different uh, areas, in the first stage, when you're in the forming phase, morale is high. We're all excited about a new task, but the competency is low. Because I don't know how hard this is going to be. As you move to the right, what happens? The morale goes way down in the storming phase. Reality sets in. This is hard. And the competency is still low because you haven't had enough time on the job to figure it out, but it's improving. When you get to the third stage, when you get into the norming, then the morale begins to improve. Hey, I think we've got this. The competency is starting to go up. And when you get to the fourth stage in the performing stage, the morale is high. We are the champions. Our competency is high. The output is excellent. And so what we see then is it is sort of a trace which suggests that the competency starts to slowly increase and then takes off and morale starts high, takes a big dip, but then works its way back up and ultimately ends up even higher. Now, you think we can apply this to our work? How can we use these models as CISOs and as security leaders? Well, my first thought is first identify where your head is. Are you still trying to be a hero? You got to take that cape off. You got to be willing to go ahead and take some risk and let other people roll up their sleeves and get the work done. And then you communicate with management. You orchestrate their opportunities for success. 
Then diagnose where your team is in terms of their organizational culture. Remember I told you, if you're in an organization that has a huge toxic overflow, first of all, it's like maybe you don't even want to be there. But if there's an opportunity for success, find it. Look at terms of where the opportunities are for developing the skills of your team. And then what's the maturity of your group? Are you in the forming, storming, norming, performing phase? And where is it appropriate to go ahead and uh, apply your things? What else, Ross? What else should we be doing here? Well, we talked about how we want this to become a process, right? So the process of doing amazing things. And, and to do that and get out of the hero firefighting, we really need to establish clear mission statements, measurable goals or KPIs and objectives. And we need to define what the expectations are for each of the positions. We need to understand our folks to know which ones can be stretched for growth, which ones have certain things. Maybe someone's very creative, another person is very process-driven. How can you apply those strengths of those individuals and set the staff up for success? And as we do this, how do we also create a culture of feedback that allows trust and dialogue? And this really allows you as a leader to make better decisions. And and I'll give you a simple example of this. Imagine every week you have your team meeting. You say, okay, we're going to go around the room. And I want everyone to open up with a new idea of something we could do better. And then you just sit and listen. And that open feedback allows an opportunity where employees can offer good ideas and you can listen and figure out which ones you want to take forward from the team. And when there are ideas that are confrontational, how do you as a manager provide effective conflict management so that we keep the team morale high. We allow people to continue to be stretched while also making sure we're avoiding some of the key problems. And there's some great wisdom in there, Ross. Thank you. Now, here's an interesting thought. Models are great, but let's go ahead and see if we can synthesize all these ideas. Let's, let's take a, a more of a tactical problem. Your top employee leaves for another position. Ah, we lost her. She's gone. Well, don't give up. Let's remember our models. Think about it. Why would a person leave? Now, if the person's leaving for more money or a different professional opportunity, I think you can get her back. Now, if your corporate culture were broken and it was just a horrible place to work, probably not. But let's assume it's the former. Someone said, hey, they dangled more money. They dangled something out in front of me. This looks great. So what's the first question to ask? Don't give up. When would a person be most discouraged in a new job. Forming, storming, norming, storming, right? Remember storming? That's when morale takes a dive. Yeah, that storming phase occurs about six to nine months into the job, sometimes a little bit sooner, but it's almost universal. I remember years ago when then President Trump tweeted about how this job is really hard. Yeah, hello. Every job goes through that. And the storming phase then represents two opportunities. One, for your own teams is when you got to put extra effort in there to encouraging them. And that's when you go ahead and maybe you, you buy a little bit extra stuff for happy hour on Friday or you do something to keep that morale up through these dark days of that phase. But also it gives you an opportunity to poach your employee back. 
So now you've waited the appropriate amount of time. You call her up and said, say, so how's it going at that new company? Oh, oh man, that sounds rough. Have you, have you gotten any awards yet? Of course not. It's too soon. Uh, do I remember how well we did here? I mean, everybody loved having here and, uh, and all the great stuff that we've got. Remind, remind that person of everything that's not present during the storming phase. So, yeah, we're doing a little bit of maybe manipulating, I suppose. But, hey, it's your team. Share the successes that occurred with your team, not the new one. You want to say, hey, guess what we've been doing? We've worked on this. We've worked on this. It would be great to have you as part of this again. Now, don't talk down the new opportunity. You don't want to say, why would you go work for that stupid company and that dumb job? Why? Because that person shows it over you. Okay, that person already made a deliberate choice. So don't question that person's judgment, but rather make your own organization seem better by comparison. Can you think of other scenarios? Absolutely. Think of your current challenges that you face as a security leader that have to do with your people. And think about these different models that we've talked about. And can you map your situation onto them such that you understand Better, more effective ways to lead, better, more effective ways to motivate what your people are going to be facing in terms of maybe challenges or frustrations, when it's appropriate to offer opportunities and rewards, and when it's appropriate to buckle down. Your flexibility as a leader becomes one of your primary assets. So these models are useful when they allow you to make better decisions. From an academic perspective, it's interesting. And if you come up with it yourself, you can write a book and make a lot of money and go on the speaking circuit. But that's not us. See, leadership is a choice. And we increase our skills by developing expertise, potentially based on the observations of others. Let me conclude with a quote. Leaders are made, not born. They're made by a lifelong study of history, of the influence of leaders on it, and by absorbing the real-life teaching of role model leaders. Leaders are made by the day-to-day practice and fine-tuning of leadership talents, because leading is an art as well as a science, and best developed by application. Leaders are made by the steady acquisition of professional knowledge and by the development of a 24-character character during the course of a career. These traits foster inner strength, self-confidence, and the capacity to inspire by examples of professional as well as personal excellence. That's not a management author. That is General John Wickham, the 30th Chief of Staff of the United States Army. And so leadership lessons are available to us from all over, both from the management books from those who have been successful in government service and private practice, businesses, nonprofits. Look around you. Take advantage of the learning opportunities. Incorporate what it is that we're bringing to you in these series of podcasts into your ability to improve your skills and your talents and your abilities. And what you're going to find out is you'll be much, much more successful in your career and hopefully in your life. Ross, any final thoughts? Thanks, G. Mark. I think you've done a really good summary here of of being able to say, how do I go from being a lone ranger type superhero to one who can lead a team? 
through understanding things like organizational maturities and what are the levels we need to get to to make an organization that is world-class, to understanding some of the problems with forming teams and how do we go through the phases of the forming, storming, norming, performing, and even adjoining stages. And as we do these sorts of things and being able to understand how to tell, sell, participate, and delegate, we've really created a way that aligns a team to create the culture and the processes that really reflect our values of where we want to go. I think this example that you concluded on of leaders are made, not born, is really important. We learn through observation. So the more that you can listen to the smartest people in the room who are around you to learn something, the more you can read and listen to podcasts that can influence and improve your behavior is only going to strengthen your tradecraft. And we're happy to provide little nuggets of wisdom each week here on CISO Tradecraft. So thank you for sticking with us. At this time, we ask one small thing. If you like the show, please promote it. Share it on your social media feeds so that others can also share these lessons and improve their lives. Thank you again for listening to CISO Tradecraft, and we appreciate your time. Take care, everyone.